Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello everybody, welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast. We have a new episode for you today and we're going to go a little bit out of our norm. I know we spend a lot of time on search and seizure and use of force and, and leadership and I really think it's important that we touch on something that uh, all of us could use a little bit of help on, and that would be wellness. And uh, I'm happy to have today with me on the podcast, uh, Dr. Catherine Coleman. And uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Coleman today. Uh, I had the opportunity of, uh, you know, I've seen her at IACP and interacted with her, but just recently, uh, Lieutenant Kylan Clauser from Dixon uh, North Dakota Police Department brought us both up for a law enforcement and fire training symposium. Uh, I was her warm-up act, uh, and the next day uh, she got out there and 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 she killed it. And so since that point in the springtime, I'm like, we really need to get that discussion online. So I'd like to start with just saying hi. And uh, Dr. Coleman, good afternoon. How are you? Good. Good afternoon to you. It's it's still morning here. Um, I'm three hours behind you. That's okay. But, uh, I, that's okay. I'm in Connecticut. <laughs> I think I'd rather be in Connecticut right now. Well, you guys are getting a little, uh, little warm out there in Arizona, huh? I think um, I, I think I'm going to burn to a crisp if I go outside. It's like an oven right now. Like, yeah, it, it's, burn your eyeballs. Yeah, I'm, I'm not coming out to play golf in, in, in this, in this weather. It's just not happening. Uh, um, the good thing is, though, if you play golf and, you know, for, for four hours straight and you drink plenty of water, you're not going to have to pee even once. <laughs> and no break. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. So when we when we start our podcast, something I've always done is I like to start with a quote. And so when I was looking around at wellness, there's a lot of quotes out there. But I found one by Jenna Wortham that said, wellness. I came to realize will not happen by accident. It must be a daily practice, especially for those of us who are more susceptible to the oppressiveness of the world. And I thought that that was kind of perfect for the aspect that your specialty is, is you know, being a, a guider in treatment of PTSD, depression, anxiety, and general life stressors for police and public safety psychology. And I thought that that's perfect for you. What do you think? I love that quote. It, it, well, it's so true. Um, you know, I think for the longest time that law enforcement in particular has been very reactive when it comes to mental health. So we wait until things get really bad and then we want to treat the problem. And in this day and age, I'm, I'm happy that a lot of departments are focusing on the wellness, which is the preventative aspect of what can we do now to, to prevent things from getting bad so that, you know, officers can have long careers where they, you know, they don't have to retire early because they can't perform the job anymore because they've been through too much trauma. Or, you know, sometimes we see that trauma impacts decision making and threat perception, and it leads to officers making really dumb decisions. So we don't want that either. And so daily practice, I think, is huge. And, and this is a new area for me. You and I have talked about this where I'm old school. Right. I started in the job in the 90s after military service and Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And and, you know, wellness was was really simple. You know, suck it up, buttercup. Right. That that was wellness. Uh, and, and I do agree with you that uh, we probably could have done a lot better 
if we truly recognize wellness more than the the industry has let on over over decades. Oh, totally. And uh, I mean, you, you bring up a good point. I mean, that was very much the mentality back. And, and honestly, I think that that mentality still exists quite a bit. It, it permeates a lot of departments, and it takes a lot of culture changing to to reverse that and bring it to where at least we're trying to go. So let's start with, tell me a little bit about, tell our listeners, you know, a little bit about yourself. And and specifically, I want to focus on how you developed an interest in police and, and public health, safety, psychology, and, and what led you to specialize in this area? So I think you got like four questions in that one. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, <laughs> So uh, I, I went to college in, in Florida at the University of Central Florida, um, which in my view is the, the best school in Florida, um, not U.S. It's a fun school. Florida. It is. Oh, it's a fun school. That is for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, when I was in school, so I double majored in psychology and criminal justice, and I've always had um, an interest in law enforcement. I would have became a cop myself if I didn't have to wear a uniform and put my hair up. Those are just two things that I refuse to ever do. Like if you see me at the gym, my hair will still be down. Like I, I doesn't ever go up. So um, not a, you're not a bun kind of girl. Absolutely not. I I respect everyone that can do it, but it gives me a migraine, and and I don't like uniforms. Yeah. So I was like, well, what else can I do with this interest that I have? And um, so my grandfather was an FBI agent. Um, so I always had a lot of respect for him and had an interest in what the bureau did and. Um, so I was just like, oh gosh, what do I do with myself? Um, you know, now that I'm finishing college and, uh, there was a school out in Denver, the university of Denver that had a master's degree in forensic psychology. It was a great program. And, uh, but at the end of that, I still felt like I hadn't learned enough. Like there was still a lot more to, to, to learn and which led me to a doctorate. And, uh, towards the end of my doctorate, um, psychologists are required to do a year long, they call it an internship, but the medical professional would call it a residency. Um, and I, ended up matching with a police psychologist in Denver. And it ended up, I think, being the best thing that could have ever happened because I had I felt like I had found my people. Like I felt like it was the perfect blend of everything that I was interested in, you know, um, and, you know, officers and firefighters. I can use my dark sense of humor. I don't have to beat around the bush. I can be an asshole sometimes. You know, so it's what are you trying to say, Kate? I, I give me a stubborn alpha man, and I can I can make him cry. Great. I don't know any of those in law enforcement <laughs> or or fire service at all. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it just it, that's how it walked, and and um, it, it's been great ever since. And I've been fortunate. I you know I worked in Colorado for many years and brought what I do down to Arizona because I I'll never shovel snow again in my life. And uh, it's been great since. And and I have just the fortune honor I people that work for me that do a lot of therapy. I get to travel around the country and speak on things that I'm passionate about and, and law enforcement, mental health and wellness and, you know, try to get things changed. And you are involved in the psychological section of IACP, right? Of course I am. Yeah. And that's a great, uh, us in the legal officer section, we consider the psychological section, our partners and uh, happy to work with them. Uh, uh, they're very difficult people to get legal update to. They're, they, they're very critical of our legal updates. But other than that, uh, they think they're critical of everything attorneys do. But I Well, I don't think there's anything worse than a room full of shrinks, to be honest with you. There's it's a, a lot of ego and it's a lot of opinions a lot of the time. So uh, I'd rather speak to a room of attorneys anytime. Well, 
easy. Don't let you wish for it. Uh, so you've been doing this since 2014 and very basically focused on, on first responders. Is that accurate? Yes, exclusively first responders. All right. And and you do a lot of training. And, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners know that we do a lot of it and we end up crossing paths along the way. But but uh, when you present nationally on wellness issues and uh, related to law enforcement, what are what is the topics that you focus on? So when I'm talking about wellness to law enforcement agencies, it's usually, you know, understanding the stress that's that's inherent in the job. But also, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that police officers experience the same life stressors as everybody else. So we've got, you know, financial problems and marital issues and, you know, raising kids and, you know, dealing with a, an, an economy that's sometimes in shambles, global pandemics, plus the stressors that are inherent within the job, right? So it adds to everything. And so I think understanding how the stress cycle works and understanding people's own reactions to it is kind of the foundation of what we do, but understanding what trauma actually looks like and how it manifests itself. What's the difference between a traumatic reaction after a critical incident and when it actually develops into a disorder that needs more intense treatment is huge. Um, and then I think one of the big things now is resiliency. So how do we prevent this from, from happening? How you know, when somebody goes through a traumatic incident, how do we shift mindset so that they don't feel like a victim um, or a failure and instead um, have the tools to uh, move forward and see what happened as, you know, something that gives them purpose or meaning in life? Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, Kara, Kara put together some great questions as we were going through here. So she's really going to test you today. That's it. Okay. I was, all right. So let's, let's deal with the real issue, because with the short time I have you, I want to make sure that we give our listeners, you know, direct ways to address these issues. So in your opinion, how can law enforcement agencies and professionals professional, uh, proactively address mental health challenges within their ranks? And what resources are available them to support in, to them in seeking help? So from a higher level, I mean, we really need chiefs and law enforcement executives to get on the same page about wellness and to incorporate wellness into their daily practice within, within their department. It starts from hiring. Um, so, you know, I've told departments, you need to think about the psychologists that you're using to do your pre-employment evaluations. That is the first person that officers come into contact with. And a lot of times it's going to be the first mental health clinician that they ever meet in their entire life. And so if you've got somebody who is essentially interrogating candidates when they walk in the door. And then let's say that candidate gets hired and they, they get in a shooting. Do they, do you really think they're going to go to a shrink and be honest about what happened when their first, you know, you know, interaction was something that was negative. Um, so, so it starts with thinking about the people that you're actually using as part of the hiring process. Um, it starts with, you know, having these discussions within the police academy um, and building in stress management, knowing that the police academy is stressful, what kinds of techniques can we teach, um, you know, new candidates and cadets throughout the academy to manage the stress of the academy? And then throughout the department, you know, what's the messaging around mental health? Um, are we having the conversations brought out into the open? What's it like when somebody comes to their sergeant and they express that they're thinking about suicide? You know, are, are they treated like a leper? Or are they, you know, given resources and, you know, 
promise that they're going to have a job after they come back from inpatient treatment. Uh, those are important. And I think it's important, too, for departments to select uh, mental health clinicians for their employee assistance program or whoever officers are seeing after a critical incident that actually understand the job um, and that can, you know, as as much as they can be integrated into the department, get to know people. Uh, and I'm a proponent for wellness checks, um, you know, annual or biannual meetings mandated by the department. Um, it's like preventative maintenance like with a car, it's like an oil change. It's just a, it's a informal conversation. Um, and most officers will come in and say, hey, I'm doing okay. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, now they've got a direct contact if shit ever hits the fan. They don't have to think hard when they're in a moment of crisis to reach out to somebody. So uh, th those are all things that departments can do. And there are resources out there. Um, it's unfortunate that our field doesn't have a ton of culturally competent clinicians. I think that's changing. Um, but the resources, you know, you already mentioned the IACP police psychological services section. Yep. You know, you can you can be assured that that members of that section are competent because in order for us to be a member, we have to have like three letters of recommendation from police chiefs that have worked with us directly. So these are already people that are embedded somehow in organizations. Um, the, the National Fraternal Order of Police has begun um, vetting clinicians and uh, training programs as well as treatment programs across the country. Um, and they, they've got a whole list that you have to fill out online. And then you have a basically a panel interview um, with the director of wellness from the FOP as well as one of their peers. Um, and they make sure that the people that are on their list are qualified. Um, you've got the Society for Police and Criminal Psychology that also um, has a number of members that are going to be culturally competent. And then the American Board of Professional Psychology, which is, um, I mean, I would argue those who are board certified in police and public safety psychology are the ones that have essentially been deemed experts by their peers. Um, it's going to be a smaller group of people. But those are great places to start. And it's not exhaustive. There's there's plenty of other other routes to take, but those are going to be your top ones. And I really appreciated what you said in the beginning of this, which is it seems you're saying that one of the biggest issues is acceptance, uh, that it's okay. And, and so what I would ask is, in your experience, what are the common misconceptions and misunderstandings about mental health needs of law enforcement professionals? I say that, you know, trying to, not to laugh internally because I know exactly what they are, but I think it's important for me not to bias this conversation, but... <laughs> What, what, is the, what is the big misconceptions that you do see? Well, there's a lot of people have issues and the it's the, the fear and the fear of judgment of speaking up that prohibits people from doing anything about it. And so when I, when I go around the country and I do these trainings, one of the things that I do is I, I have this list of nine different behaviors that I'll pass out to the class on piece, little pieces of paper. And it'll be like, you know, felt depressed, felt anxious, uh, abused alcohol, uh, been abusive to a partner, been in a shooting, um, felt suicidal, didn't seek out help due to fear of judgment, um, abused porn or, you know, abused food to cope, all of these different things. And I have everybody circle or check off the boxes for things that they have experienced themselves, fold them up, bring them back. And then later on in the class, I'll pass those out. And they're all anonymous. And then we do this standing up exercise so that they can see in the room, you know, exactly how many people are affected by some of these problems. And I, I was in D.C. yesterday with about 65 law enforcement leaders from across the world. 
and we did this exercise and they were in shock. You know, for felt anxious, 90% of the room stood. And these are leaders in law enforcement. There was probably 10 or 12 that had felt suicidal before. Half the room had abused alcohol at some point. And I, you know, I said, okay, that's a lie. We know it's more than that. But <laughs> yeah, cheated on the partner. Okay, there, I know that it was more than three of you. Okay, let's be real here. But, <laughs> but it's like the, the problem is actually huge. And like it takes things like that for, for people to actually recognize and see it because we are so good at, at masking because, you know, cops are taught to, you know, keep the wall up when they're on calls, right? I mean, like, they're taught to, like, not show any emotion, no vulnerabilities. That would be a weakness. You know, you can't show any emotion at all. And, you know, then that permeates the rest of your life. And and it's a big problem. And I think that's the biggest misconception is that everybody around us is okay. And if we feel something, then we're the one that's messed up. When in reality, the people that are okay are, are you know, 100% of the time, they're the ones that are in the minority. I agree with you. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in, and, and I try to talk a lot about too, is, you know, back when I started 30 years ago, family and family members and, and your support group was something that actually was important. And it has looked like over the years that the support structure that these first responders have is is less important. And so I see you in your analysis bringing back more interaction with the family members. And so when you're dealing with with the professionals, what unique considerations do you take into account when providing services to the family members? Well, I think that um, number one is, I think that we need to assist family members in helping them understand the realities of the job um, and understanding what critical incidents look like and how their officer may come home and and act like so that they can be supportive. Um, but it's very stressful on family members as well. Um, I remember in 2020, um, you know, after all the George Floyd riot, and this was such a dark time for law enforcement um, because they were being targeted. And that extended to the family members. And I, I don't know that the rest of the world really understood that. Um, one of the local nonprofits had asked me to facilitate a support group for spouses locally. And so um, we would meet once a week um, in one of the women's homes and the stories that they would tell about how this was impacting them was like, you know, my son, you know, has a thin blue line flag on his lunchbox and he, we can't send him to school with that lunchbox anymore without another kid telling him that his dad's a murderer. Or there was one spouse who was receiving threats to be killed and raped by, um, protesters. And so like that those are actual real issues, you know, that the families can get attacked, you know, stuff's public online. You can find information about people. Um, and, and so that happens, you know, at any time an officer either gets in trouble or is involved in a shooting and their name gets released to the media, you know, people are looking up that officer's address. Um, you know, that impacts the family. Shift work affects the family, knowing that officers are going to miss their kid softball games and baseball games and ballet recitals because they've got to work. I mean, these are real issues for family members and they have to work hard to keep their family, I think, intact, you know, more so than, you know, a, a spouse that both partners work in nine to five. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've lived it and I experienced it and, and it's very important to, to have a support structure. And, and I think uh, the difficulty that we've seen in, is that the support structure uh, has really 
been challenged over the years in in that obviously media and social media scrutiny, as you said, you hit it right on the head. Like that's really that's really challenged the support structure. And um, I mean, I was lucky; I had a good support structure. And so when you would come home from after working homicide and you'd see something that was, you know, not something you didn't want to see, the support structure would help you through that. Um, and so I encourage officers to really build up a support structure and, and, and do you have any advice to assist officers in, in having that open communication with their support structure to try and deal with the, the pressures of media and social media that we see every day? Yes. I mean, just the whole like work-life separation, I think um, there's no truth to that. In this day and age, we can't separate work and life. And so we have to integrate them in a healthy way. Um, and so as, as far as like your partners go, I would say, you know, ask your spouse or your, your partner how much they're comfortable hearing. There's an assumption out there. Oh, if I go home and I tell my wife about, you know, the dead kid that I saw today, they can't handle it. But then I'm like, well, did you ask them? Ask them what their threshold is. Because that having somebody to kind of vent to and, and offload to is huge. Um, and it's important that your spouse know what you're going through so that they can find a way to support you. If you come home with your guard up every single day and pretending that everything's fine, they're going to treat it like everything's fine and it may not be the best thing for you. And um, think about who's in your social circle. Think about who has access to your social media and who can see your life. And I would say stay away from social media as much as you can. Um, especially news articles. And so whenever there's anything controversial, it can be so easy to get sucked in and start reading comments on, you know, news articles online. And the media almost never gets it right anyway. Uh, but then you find yourself in this pissed off place where you just like want to go truth warrior all over everybody because you know what happened. And, you know, all of a sudden people become used to force experts overnight and they're all wrong. But it's like, it ju that just makes things worse and then if you've been through like if you go through something traumatic or a critical incident that's in the news and they're showing footage of it like if you keep watching that over and over again you're re-exposing yourself stay away i mean i see that re-exposure in litigation and depositions and trial testimony and uh, it, it's real it, it does it does damage i mean i've had plenty of clients that will emotionally break down in certain parts of the trial and area and they've done, they did their job. They haven't done anything that I think is inaccurate or, or, or incorrect. And they, it's still overwhelming for them because of the perceptions that are out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you can't avoid some of the re-exposure. And so you might as well avoid what you can. Um, and I think like in those moments where you do, where you're being deposed or you have to, to repeat what happened or you have to be exposed to it, you know, having a good skill set to, to cope with it and balance things out. So like taking breaks, um, focusing on deep breathing, which will calm your nervous system. That's stuff that you can do to kind of tactically at least pause um, yourself during those situations so that you don't find yourself being overwhelmed or kind of overflowing. Yeah. I, um, I strongly recommend anybody listening, especially the command staff stuff. I have heard, uh, I've heard Katie in, in the feedback that we've gotten from some of her training, which is, is phenomenal. And uh, good trainers are, are hard to come by. Um, you talked a little bit about your presentations, but what are the what is when you're doing a, a full day presentation? What are the what are the topics that you focus on um, to assist the the attendees? 
Well, I mean, it ultimately depends who's in the audience. Um, so like I mentioned, I was in VC yesterday. These were all leaders in their organization. And so we talked a lot about, you know, policy around wellness in their departments. And, you know, we we would do tabletops on, you know, major incidents like the Boston Marathon or the Aurora Theater shooting. And, you know, what sticks out? How do you support officers immediately a month after, six months after? What do you do for families? What do you do for reintegration back to work? So sometimes the the conversations and the discussions will go towards that policy direction. Um, but I think hitting on, you know, I talked a little bit about stress management, but I talk a lot about trauma and not what it looks like clinically, because I don't think, you know, we're not training anybody to diagnose or to be shrinks, but it's so important for officers and command to understand what, how this actually looks when it comes out. Like, what are they actually going to see from officers at work? Exactly. Like, you know, now that like, hey, when they're calling out of work a couple of days in a row or, you know, their hygiene seems a little bit off, that there's something, there's some deviation from baseline that that's when you need to say something or when they have that glazed look in their eyes or, you know, maybe when they're making careless errors and being a little bit more reckless, that's actually a result of trauma and stress and not because they're just a bad employee. Right. Well, when we were Going through your background, one of the things that we saw, and you've done a, a ton of things, but you you got an experience to serve as a subject matter expert on traumatic stress for the Colorado Governor's uh, Expert Emergency Epidemic Response Committee. How did that experience shape uh, or what insights did you gain from that experience uh, having to do with dealing with uh, LE and fire professionals? It, it was an interesting experience. And I, I have to tell you, I am so happy that I was and that I had already moved from Colorado during COVID because that group was activated the whole time because it's all about, um, ep, you know, epidemics. Um, and so so that, that would have been a very busy time. And I'm kind of happy that I didn't have to be a part of it then. But a lot of the stuff that, that we would talk about, you know, these were leaders from around the state, state. So you would have the state epidemiologist and the state veterinarian and the director of public safety. Um, you know, the state medical examiner and all of the high profile people um, that like, let's be honest, you know, sometimes the higher people get it, it can some, you know, people get stuck in their ways and aren't, they aren't always as flexible and adaptable to new ideas. Um, so that, that was always a, uh, a struggle for me. And then I was probably the youngest person in the room by at least 20 years. So, so that, that didn't go in my favor either. Um, but it was it, it was really interesting to just hear all of these different perspectives from leaders around the state um, and to be able to find ways to share expertise in a way that people would listen. Um, and, and the whole point of having a subject matter expert as part of that committee was that, you know, when there's some kind of epidemic that it creates, you know, people are, they feel like they're in crisis, they become neurotic, people freak out or, you know, are one of the things that we dealt with quite a bit that wasn't necessarily an epidemic, but it would be things like massive wildfires that would create, um, you know, people would be dislocated from where they lived and it would require a lot of resources. And so how, you know, from a psychological standpoint, you know, who are the people that are approved to provide psychological first aid and stuff like that? Yeah, that's, I mean, again, that's in the, in that area of trauma. I saw also, which was, Interesting that you you do some workplace violence prevention and threat assessment with schools and universities and corporations. Um, how does that work intersect with law enforcement efforts and, and what role do they play 
in that in that public safety response application? It's actually huge. Um, so threat assessment is actually one of the um, main. Well, it's it's an activity that's under police and public safety psychology. And I was I was just actually when I was in DC, I was in Quantico for two days at a at an advanced training with the BAU, kind of talking about this stuff. Um, and it, it's helpful for police psychologists to have those to do this work because we have the relationships with the police departments already. Um, and so the, the idea is that there's so many people in the community um, that they there's red flags that they may engage in some kind of targeted violence or terrorism, but they haven't committed a crime yet. And so these people kind of, they're in this weird gray area where they can't be arrested by law enforcement. Um, and they may not, they may not be quite crazy enough to be placed on a hold. And so like, what do you do with them? Um, and so that's where these multidisciplinary teams come in where you've got, you know, county attorneys and, you know, if, if it's a corporation, you maybe you bring in human resources, um, the school system, because a lot of these are juveniles, there's an increase in juveniles making threats. Um, and law enforcement partners to figure out, okay, how do we pull them away from this pathway so that they don't commit, you know, so that they're not the next mass shooter or the next school shooter. One of the things I like to do in this podcast is I like to try and give directed advice. And, and part of the reason I started this podcast was because the younger generation has to learn things a lot quicker than we did. They, they're under intense scrutiny right off the bat. So I always like to ask all of the individuals we have on, whether they're from law enforcement or private sector or like yourself in the psychological world, a few different questions about advice. And, and the first one would be this. If you had the opportunity, which you probably have, to sit down with a brand new officer and, and have lunch, and they looked at you and said, hey, what advice would you give me uh, to have a long, successful career? What, what would that advice be? I would tell them to not make their entire identity being a law enforcement officer. That the the job, especially when, when you get started, it can suck you in and it's exciting and all the adrenaline rush, like that's fun. Um, but the job will not always be there. You will retire one day, hopefully. Um, or, you know, you'll leave because it's not for you. And then what? Uh, make sure that you spend time with your family. You know, if you're if be a family man or family what, right? So the other hats you wear are just as important as your law enforcement hat. And if you have that balance, then you're going to be able to handle the job a lot better. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, so let's move to the next level, which would be supervision. You know, first line supervisors in an area where one of the things that I focus on is that, that officers, um, they're, they're, they're questioning everything right now. They lack confidence. They're, they have real fear. Uh, they're concerned about what they do and when they do in the, in the pushback that they're going to get. What advice could you give to a supervisor to help these officers through the challenges of today's environment? Um, positive feedback is just as important as negative feedback and criticism. Um, that's how we condition people to do what we want them to do is by positive reinforcement. So that's huge. And just remember where these newer officers came from. I think that's that's because it can be, it can be very easy to get frustrated with them, um, but you have to remember that a lot of this generation of new officers they came from homes where they may not have been told no, 
um, where their hand was held a little bit more. And now we're throwing them into a profession where we're asking them to make uh, sometimes life or death, death decisions by themselves. Yeah, very critical decisions. And so um, remembering that and giving that positive reinforcement, I think, is the most important. Yeah, I think that's you just summed up one of the biggest challenges there is, is, is you know, we had more time. 30 years ago to learn how to do the job and make mistakes. And I just don't see that. And now we also have a different generation of officers and, and they are who they are, but, but finding the, the mechanism or the correct way to prepare them to do the job is, is really something that all disciplines have been coming together to figure out. It's, it's, I don't know that we have figured it out. No, small successes lead to more confidence in the job. So that's what we want. Look at that. Is that a psychological quote? <laughs> no, I just made it up. <laughs> there you go. We're going to put a quote out with your name on it just because of that. How is that? Uh, and so the last one, or I have one more question after this, but my question is, well, let's go to the chiefs now. Um, chiefs that have been in industries for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, uh, they're not in charge. Uh, they're, they're trying to do very well by their people, but this wellness thing, kind of what you started with today is a new, is a new adventure for them. Uh, what's, what's the advice you're going to give them? What's the things that they can do to uh, enhance the capacity of officers and supervisors? Um, I think number one is that, and I think of the best way to say this is it can be very uncomfortable to sit in this space where like now we're having conversations about things that previously were very taboo, um, right? Things like suicide or PTSD that, you know, we just like, they were just like this monster that we just want to like, keep under the bed. Um, and so now that those conversations are being brought out, it, it can be very uncomfortable for chiefs to be having those. Um, don't shy away from those conversations. The more that you engage with them and you, the more that you understand what's actually going on in your department and don't be scared of it too. Everybody has got a little bit of crazy in them. Um, so it's just a matter of, of managing it. Um, there's plenty, I mean, gosh, I know so many officers, you know, who have been through trauma, who even have PTSD, but they've learned to manage it and they're amazing officers. We can't see you know, the stigma of this stuff and, and people's ability to perform the job. Um, they're not one and the same. One thing that came up for me, and this is a, this is, I'm going to add a question there because it was uh, something that I hear you talking about. In the, in the younger days in our world, we worked as much as we could uh, to make money, to support our family and to, you know, pay for a house. And now we're in a world where, you know, every department is 20% low on retention and recruitment. And these officers are, are working a lot uh, and sometimes 18 hours a day. In, in that, in the psychological application, what's, what's the concerns with that? Well, the concern, I mean, so our bodies physiologically are not meant to handle the amount of adrenaline rushes and dumps that an officer would experience during the course of a normal shift anyway. Um, so the more that we tack on that, the the more strain that's going to cause. Um, and then it takes 18 to 24 hours for our bodies physiologically to go back to baseline after an adrenaline dump. So if you think about officers who are doing this for three, four days in a row, they don't even have the chance to start to recover until their weekend hit. Um, and, and so what this means is like you are adding just forget about general stressors, like physiologically, like their body is in a stress mode 
by day two or three, um, which is going to impact their ability to perform and make good decisions and have good awareness of their surroundings and all of this other stuff. And so that it is a concern. There, there may not be a, a way to solve it. Um, but one of the things that I think that departments can do, you know, I talked about a tactical pause before is allowing officers to do that during the course of their shift. If, if staffing allows them to, if, if there's an actual break. So, um, dispatchers are lucky because they have like quiet rooms and ditch, dispatch centers where they can go for like 20 minutes. If there's a, a lull to just have a little bit of time alone, but what can we do that's like that for officers where they could just kind of pause and let their body calm down for a little bit so that they can at least then perform when they return to the road. Yeah, that's, it's necessary uh, <laughs> at a high level too long. And then it makes in my world, it makes it concerned because it affects judgment. It makes it affects decision making, use of force areas. Uh, you know, uh, just everyday application, uh, and you're not operating at your at your best. Yeah, I mean, like look, look at like semi truck drivers, right? Like they have to get a certain number of hours of sleep per night in order to right. They're only allowed to drive for so long because they recognize that you know driving after you've been awake for so long creates you know, an impairment that is similar to driving intoxicated. Um, but we've got officers out there that are basically doing the same thing, but with guns. Yeah, that's not good. All right, last question and just a general question. As you travel the country and interact, uh, what does the future of law enforcement look like to you? Oh, man. It's so hard because I try to focus so much on what's happening right now that I, I don't know that I think about the future as much. Um, I hope that the future looks like that, that departments can get back to staffing. Um, I hope that the future looks like um, law enforcement being a respectful um, or uh, occupation again, um, and that we see more young people that are wanting to do the job. That's what I hope for. I think I'm with you. There. I think we're all hoping the same. Like now. Uh, well, I. I wanted to just say thank you uh, for taking time out and jumping on us, jumping on this call with us. Uh, we're really a big fan of starting to really focus on this wellness. And those of you in the industry that are doing this, you know, you're you're really doing a, a, an honorable job for the industry. And and I, I think that you will see a return on your investment uh, because the length of time that officers will be able to do the job and more importantly, live after they do the job. I think will 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 be a direct reflection on the efforts that you and your colleagues put into making wellness a part of their everyday job. I sure hope so. Well, uh, any last words on your side? I knew you were going to ask this, that I have none. I have none. Well, that means we did a good job. <laughs> Still jet, jet lagged. I appreciate that. All right. Well, I thank you. Uh, I thank you. I hope we get to see each other soon. And yes. I appreciate all the work that you do. Yes. Likewise, I'll, uh, I assume I'll see you in San Diego in October. I will be there. Yep. And I will, I will end this podcast as we always do. Uh, help those who need your help. Uh, protect those who need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center... You can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, 
I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.